Hello, it's Aaron Wren, and my special guest today is Alexandra Hudson, who uh, conveniently is my neighbor. She lives here in Indianapolis with me, and she's the author of the new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles for Healing Society and Ourselves. Lexi, thanks for joining. Maybe you could hold up the book so people can see what it looks like. I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes uh, to buy the book if you would like. It's available wherever fine uh, books are sold. So again, Lexi, thanks for taking the time to to talk about your book. Thanks, Aaron. Thrilled to be here. And I want to make an important clarification. We do, do live in proximity, but you were in Carmel. <laughs> oh, right, right. right. Not in yeah, yeah. And oh, okay, there we go. Anyone who knows Parks and Rec, there is a, you wouldn't call Pawnee, Eagleton. Okay. Yeah, Eagleton, <laughs> yeah. Eagleton, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, when I was thinking about reading your book about civility before I even read it. I mean, here's the first thing that came to my mind. It seems to me that when people talk about civility, the people who talk about civility tend to be people who are in positions of power. They're kind of incumbent elites. And a lot of their talk about civility seems to be a way to essentially disenfranchise sort of less powerful people from being able to rock the boat. So when you talk about civility, what do you mean? It's a great point. I think that, you know, when we hear the word civility used today, it's often being weaponized, right? Deployed as a tool against someone who's engaging in conduct that someone deems undesirable and wanting to cease. Um, but yet we, so we do hear the, the, the word civility used uh, a lot today. And yet everyone thinks they know what it means. And in fact, as I learned, no one does. Uh, I argue in my book that there's an essential distinction between civility and politeness. Mm. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's external, where civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart, a way of seeing others as our moral equals that sometimes requires being impolite, telling a hard truth, engaging in robust debate, mo engaging in modes of conduct that are befitting a member of the civis, a citizen in, in the city that um, is, is and has been an essential tool for promoting you know, justice and equity in our world. I have a whole chapter on civil disobedience in my chapter, exploring how this rich and vibrant tradition in, in, in American history has been a tool of, of affecting um, justice and, and equality in our world. And so it's a far cry from what many people think when they want to dismiss civility and politeness part and parcel as like just manners and tone policing and and and, mm -hmm. and etiquette. Because uh, civility is so much more, more than that. And it's, it's essential for human flourishing across history and culture, and especially for the survival of a democracy. You went back and looked at a whole lot of people throughout history uh, weighing in on this topic. Who are some of the people that inspired you in thinking about civility? You know, I thought that grounding this book in the human tradition would lend some much needed clarity to this conversation that we're having in our own moment about civility. My book is about the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference. And I realized while writing this book that this is also the defining question of democracy, of the classical liberal project, but it's also, in addition to those things, the defining human question, and that people have in fact been grappling with this question of how to flourish even amid disagreement as long as we've been around as a species. So I draw from um, you know, ancient Middle Eastern texts, medieval etiquette books, ancient Egyptian uh, texts on civility. Um, the oldest book in the world, for example, is a civility book given to us from ancient 
Egypt called the Maxims of Tahotep. I draw from Homer's Iliad, deriving um, insights there about timeless principles of civility and hospitality. Uh, I draw from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest story in the world about human nature and why there is this inherent tension between our love of self and love of others that is the defining human tension within, within our nature and the defining tension of um why civility is never a foregone conclusion in any time or place, including our own. And I wanted to do that to broaden the conversation. It's really easy to feel like our era is the most uncivil. And uh, what I discovered while writing this book is that every era tends to feel that way. Every era tends to blame kids these days. You know, where are the manners of children? You know, which is so funny. Human nature Mm -hmm. doesn't change. It's not to say that there aren't important differences. between. There's nothing new under the sun. That's right. As the book of Ecclesiastes says in Hebrew Bible, nothing new under the sun. Yeah. So I am curious really to hone on in on this role of kind of being a pain in the butt in civility. So how would you analyze something like the civil rights movement and that framework? You know, society needs gadflies. Society depends on gadflies for progress and for accountability. Um, Socrates famously called himself a gadfly uh, for his fellow Athenians. When he would walk around and ask people questions that they couldn't answer, he exposed ignorance, which Socrates is like, I'm doing you a favor, you know, mm-hmm. now you know where you want to grow. And people are like, no, I hate you. <laughs> like, let's, right. let's, let's force more commit suicide. But like, but so gadflies, sure, they're annoying, right? They're pains in the butt, as you, as you mentioned, but they're, but they're essential for, for, for progress. Like the, the truth tellers, the prophets in a society are, are never very rarely welcomed when they're being confronted by, uh, by hard truths, ugly truths. Um, you know, I, 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 as I mentioned, I have a whole chapter in my book on civil disobedience. And I talk about Gandhi. I talk about Henry David Thoreau. I talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. All these people who took great personal risk upon themselves in order to speak hard truths to the societies that they were uh, speaking to. In Henry David Thoreau's case, it was about uh, the Mexican-American War and 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 and, and uh, government, you know, having a cavalier attitude towards American American life. Gandhi was the oppressive nature of British colonialism and in in India. And uh, with Dr. King, of course, it was the abhorrent injustice of racial segregation in the American context. And all of them are. are are part of this vibrant uh, tradition of peaceful, nonviolent resistance, that there are effective means of pricking the conscience of a society, especially a, a, a Western democracy that claims to uphold a, a value of human life and human equality, uh, and, to, and to engage in a, a, a method of action that is, is powerful, it's, it's, it's speaking the truth to power, but it's also, crucially, not undermining those values of basic human equality and human dignity along along the way. For example, Dr. King knew that, uh, and, and as, as did others, uh, other abolitionists from Frederick Douglass to William Lloyd Garrison, that they they had had confidence in the moral uprightness of their cause, uh, of their strong belief in basic human equality, regardless of skin color, regardless of these, these external um, attributes. And yet they knew that even though they were totally in the right, they couldn't engage in a sort of ends justifies the means mentality because that would undermine their fundamental belief in the basic human equality. Mm-hmm. 
and dignity. They couldn't degrade the dignity of, of others along the way of pursuing basic human dignity and, and recognition and equality. Um, and, and so that, that Gandhi has this great line, you know, means matter. In fact, means are everything. He says means like the, the the instrument, the tools, the path you take to pursue a, a goal matters just as much, if not more than the goal and, and nobility of the goal itself, which is so it's a, that's such a good corrective for our current moment. That is so apocalyptic. It's it's very instrumental, right? Like there are people on both sides of the political spectrum today that say the other side is too bad, too, too evil, too misguided. To, to be respectful towards, to treat with dignity, mm-hmm. to give the benefit of the doubt to, that we have to be willing to take the gloves off and do anything to win. And that is so dangerous. It's exactly the sort of apocalyptic, dehumanizing rhetoric that um, Gandhi, King, and others were very wary of. Yeah, you know, when I was reading that, I was thinking of uh, a guy named A. Montgomery Ward. He was the guy that founded the old Montgomery Ward department store chain. Uh, probably before your day, that they they all went out of business. But he was a wealthy guy in Chicago in the early 20th century. And he is the reason that the lakefront of Chicago is undeveloped and is open parkland. He really made himself a real pain in the butt. He filed tons of lawsuits, litigated to the Illinois Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, to essentially keep the Chicago lakefront forever free and clear of development. And we just don't have people like that today. It seems that there are two kinds of people in the kind of like incumbent elites I mentioned. There's an almost Orwellian groupthink. You know, I'll go to a conference and a hundred percent of the people there basically all are in agreement on all the big points. It's like North Korea. I mean, there's, there's almost no dissent on a lot of issues. And then, you know, the people who are sort of uh, dissident, if you will, they tend to be provocateurs of course, the online world rewards people for being very provocative and stirring the pot and saying outrageous things. And so we don't really have, I think, that thing in the middle where somebody who's called a quote unquote respectable member of society really starts bucking you know, their fellow elites in you know a way that's like productive for making things happen. You know, that story reminds me of Jane Jacobs taking on Robert Moses, mm-hmm. right? why we have, you know, Green pasture. We, we, why we have Greenwich Village, right, yeah. in, New York, in New York City, and and it's not a super super freeway. I'm, I'm sure you're more familiar with that story oh, yeah. than than I am, but it sounds very similar. Like, and I've had the same conversation with um, friends in kind of libertarian classical circles in England. Okay, like they're they're very libertarian up until I say, well, what about England, London's beautiful public parks that mm-hmm. are not high rises. They're not, you know, parking lots for, for Russian Rolls Royces. Like they're, they're beautiful, well manicured. And they're like, you know what? That's a great point. I do love our parks. (laughs) (laughs) Those aren't, those aren't like totally subject to the free, to the free market. And there are people who have preserved these little oases, these public spaces that are essential for, for human flourishing and for just, just proximity and social trust and, Mm and, and the good life. Yeah. You got interested in this topic when you were working for the U.S. Department of uh, Education. So my condolences on working in the federal government. Thank you. What was your experience there that uh, made you hone in on this topic? 
Um, rather miserable, I would say. I went in there with the best of intentions and the best, like the most greatest optimism. I was like 23 years old, just out of grad school and uh, just out of a great experience working in local public policy and education at, at, um, at the state and city level in Wisconsin. I was in Milwaukee for a year. And I couldn't wait to put ideas into practice. And it was like my big break to have a small hand in making America's education better. And I couldn't have been more disillusioned or discouraged. And of course, you know, I, 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 as I say in my book, the human condition is a human condition in all times and all places and all in all um, vocations and all locales. And so I'm hesitant to paint any city or institution with a broad, broad brush. Right. Like I, I, I had a bad experience in um, in politics in D.C., yet those same human types exist here in, in, in the Midwest where you and I live here. And like I don't want not to- in Carmel. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Maybe Carmel's extent. Well, if that's the case, then tell me why. <laughs> civility thing in Carmel. I know, it's true. Like, I thought Carmel was the last place in the world that needed civility, Aaron. But here we are. You're the first piloting yeah. program of the first civility city in America. We can talk about that a little yeah. bit after if you want. But anyway, um, so I saw these two extremes when I was in government. Um, broad, broad extremes, of course, there are exceptions. But on one hand, there were people with sharp elbows who were hostile, bellicose, like aggressive. They were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. On the other hand, there were people who were polished and poised and, and polite, yet these are the people who would smile at me one moment, stab me and others in the back the next. And that latter contingent really perplexed me. And that helped clarify for me the perils of um, instrumentalizing others because those those two poles, the extreme hostility, extreme politeness, they seem like polar opposites, but they're actually very similar. They're two sides of the same coin. They see other human beings as means to one's selfish ends, as opposed to beings who are worthy of respect in and of themselves by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. Uh, and that I, I hungered for a, a different mode of being that didn't fall into those two excesses, the extreme hostility the extreme, you know, tone policing and niceness and politeness. And that's how I came to appreciate, um, you know, civility as this antidote to these extremes this, that, that sees other people as, as a means, uh, as ends in themselves, human beings worthy of respect just by virtue of being human. Uh, and that, that different from mere politeness actually require, requires telling hard truths and, and, and having uncomfortable um, convert conversations sometimes. But um, all that to say, when I was in, in government, I definitely had uh, my, my vision of, of, <laughs> of the good, of, of myself, of what I thought I wanted to do in the world, uh, my confidence and like my ability to coexist amid deep difference. All of that was tested and refuted. And I left government and like zoomed out and thought, you know, what does it mean to be human? What is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed no to others by virtue of our shared humanity? And what does that look like even when we deeply disagree? That's kind of the mm -hmm. foundation of, of, of civility that I unpack in the book. It seems like today there's so little civility of any variety, however you want to define it. It almost seems hopeless uh, to, I mean, is anybody really interested in, in this, I guess, is, is, is a question, or have we just simply made our peace with the, uh, the Manichaean struggle or something? So when I left government, um, I, I call myself a refugee from federal government. I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with DC. I'm done with politics. 
let's move to Indiana. And Indiana is where my husband's from originally, from, from just outside of Fort Wayne. And so we moved here. And one of my first friends here is someone we both know. In fact, I think I met your, your wife first through, uh, through this friend. Uh, Joanna Taft came up to me after church one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I'd never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but we were curious and, and we didn't know anyone uh, in town. So we went to her home that afternoon and I realized that Joanna was staging a quiet revolution against our atomized and divided status quo on her front porch. And she'd curated people across class, race, um, uh, geography, and just to inhabit a shared space and, and to build build friendship and, and, and to build trust that is so direly lacking uh, in, in our world today. And I realized that for Joanna, it's not even uh, it, that, that the porch is really a, a, a metaphor for that sort of way of life, of, 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 of living your life, wanting to transform outsider to insider, stranger into the friend. And when I was a Novak journalism fellow, I had the privilege of traveling the country, finding Joanna Taft's everywhere. People who with and without porches are doing the same way, staging the subversive, quiet revolution of people reclaiming their civic sphere, saying, I cannot control what is happening in Washington. I can't control, you know, what the primary debate, what's happening there, who's tweeting what or what the scandal of the day is. But I can control myself and I'm going to make my community better and stronger right where I am. And so I met people who were doing this you know, from local coffee shops, like holding office hours. And that was just like a place to where people knew they could come and be seen and known and loved. I met people who have weekly supper clubs or live in cities and, and, and do this from their front stoops or, you know, just, just make it a practice of reaching out and, and reaching to the stranger and, and inviting the stranger into their lives. And that's really the ethos of true civility and, 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 and hospitality, which I call a high and noble expression of civility. Uh, and this, the, the beauty and, and, and interesting facet of this is that it can't be legislated. The, no, no national policy can be rolled out and, and mandate that people porch mm-hmm. <laughs> and like and, and invite people into their homes, right? Like that'd be crazy. It has to be voluntary, it has to be spontaneous, it has to be organic. And so I hope people walk away from reading my book feeling empowered that, you know, whilst the world wants to disempower us, this moment wants to make us feel helpless and they want, it wants it wants to disempower us, empower us by blaming others. If we're blaming someone, we're helpless. But in fact, I try to invert that inspired by Joanna and and others that I talk about. I talk about Confucius, an original portrait from ancient, uh, from ancient, ancient China. I talk about Albert Schweitzer, uh, the, the um, Alsatian German philanthropist who said, Everyone needs their own Lambrone, their own little oasis that they create that they make better and more beautiful. And that like there, there, there are portraits across history and across culture who have said, I want the world to be different, but I can only change myself. And I'm going to try to change the world by changing what I what I can control. And, and, and we can we can revive that tradition and do the same. Yeah, it's sort of a, almost like a localist uh, vision. The uh, the Front Porch Republic, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They kind of are, are very into that uh, sort of thing. Joanna's interesting. She actually did introduce my wife and I to each other. Oh, fun. She's what uh, I call an Uber connector. And so yeah. if you're at her church on a Sunday morning, uh, she's like scanning the crowd. And if she sees anyone that looks new, she makes a beeline for them 
introduces herself and makes a point to get them connected, not just to people in the church, but to anyone else in the community that she knows through her network. And it really makes a huge difference. I've, I've said there's a lot of institutions that, you know, people join a church or they join something and it's like they can't meet people, they can't, they have trouble connecting. And I do think these like Uber connectors, people who make it their business to, you know, engage newcomers, connect, make connections to people is really an important role um, that, that is out there. So it's so funny. We can say that in the abstract, Aaron, that like, yes, super connectors, they're important. They make the world world go round. And yet Andrew Sullivan had me on his podcast last week, and he was utterly, he utterly recoiled at the zealous extroversion that I kind of like elevate as this like ideal in my book. He's like, that's, oh, like having someone in my home. Like he's such a mm-hmm. you know, cynical curmudgeon, but like it, 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 it's really easy to be like, yeah, that's good for other people, but like, you know, not good for me. And that's okay. Like, you know, I'm not saying that every, you have to welcome every single person into your home or you're not a good citizen if you're not having dinner parties and porching like this is it joanne is exceptional and my mother is exceptional my grandmother uh before my mother um is exceptional that like they they are they go above and beyond um in this way and 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 they they you know in the case of my grandmother i i unpack this concept of the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul, which is the power of one magnanimous soul, one like deeply well-composed individual. This is like Aristotle's concept of, of, of soulish magnanimity that you're just, you're basically so um, put together that you can be utterly self-forgetful and focused on others and, and, and your avenue of life. So it was my grandmother and my grandmother lived her life like Joanna does according to this otherworldly logic of just like seeing needs and filling them, seeing loneliness and, and meeting and just wanting to breathe life and light and kindness into people's day. And, you know, we are all familiar as, as students of public policy and people watch the news. I don't watch the news, but like <laughs> headlines are still dominated by stories of generational trauma and, and vicious cycles. Like one person's addiction, one person's, you know, selfishness and, and, and that it, it, it reverberates across time. It hurts themselves. It hurts people around them. It hurts generations after them as well. But we insufficiently tell stories of the inverse or appreciate the power that the inverse is also true. That one person through their grace, through their um, zealous extroversion, through their magnanimity can create with their lives a virtuous cycle, what I call a mellifluous echo, a beautiful echo that reverberates and and blesses and brings light and life across time and across place for for generations after them. And that that, that we tell stories like this, and I choose to, precisely because it's exceptional, but also deeply ordinary. Like it's powerful, but we can also, you know, choose to elevate our lives and how we interact with others in the small ways too. And there are deep, deep, there's deep power in that as well that we vastly underappreciate. Yeah, in terms of the practicalities of civility, we, you know, you talked about hospitality and some of that, but you sort of a hint, I think in your last thing you said, uh, the role of forgiveness, which you mention in in the book as well. It makes me think of Hannah Arendt and her uh, writings about the, the role of forgiveness in human right. affairs. And yeah. how, where does forgiveness come in as a practical mm-hmm. guide to, or a practical way to be civil? It's so interesting you say that because I think there is an enormous amount of bitterness 
in our world. Like these recent political battles of, of, of recent years, recent decades has taken its toll. And I have a whole chapter in my book on forgiveness. It's, not, it's my final chapter on misplaced meaning and forgiveness. And I tell this, I recount this poem uh, William Blake's, it's called The Poison Tree. And I don't have it memorized, but he basically tells a story about, as he says, you know, I, I, I was angry at my friend and I buried that anger and I shot my friend mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. And then he says, and then I was angry at my friend and I vented to my friend, like I came forward about like the anger and, and there was harmony and, and there was bliss. And it's, I think it's a really important insight into like so, social psychology that we, I think the human heart longs for openness and healing and forgiveness and reconciliation. Like I think mm-hmm. ideal when there is a rupture of trust that at its best, the two parties come together and there's mutual acknowledgement of the wound and mutual um, offering and receiving of forgiveness. I think that's at its best, even if it's not saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, even if one person didn't actually do anything wrong, like say, I'm sorry, this happened. Like you can apologize in a general way mm-hmm. that still um, can, can promote kind of the, 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 the unity after a rupture. And yeah, so I think that's the ideal, that reconciliation where two parties come and are equally humble, equally as committed to the restoration. But even if that's not possible, like in the case of a very belligerent party or in the case of death, right? There are many different circumstances in which like mutual reconciliation is not possible that you can still forgive. And that when you forgive, you're actually freed of this unbelievable like burden. People insufficiently appreciate the heaviness and the toxicity that unforgiveness um, comes with. And I'm, I'm talking from this as a personal experience because I, I'm someone, I, I joke in the book, like maybe it's the Irish in me. Like I, I have a hard time letting go sometimes. I really do. It's like, it almost, it's like I accept, I've accepted this narrative that there's more power in remembering than there is in moving on and li- living my best life. Like it's a very seductive, very pernicious story. And I wrote that chapter very much, you know, as much to myself as to anyone reading it. <laughs> Um, so it reminds me, uh, my mother's family is Sicilian. There's a Sicilian saying to the effect of, if I die, I'll forgive you. If I live, I'll kill you. That's right. And that's sort of the, the way. One of the things you say is that you should try to become unoffendable. And I, you know, I don't know that any of us can be unoffendable, but the idea of just deciding to take less offense when people do things mm-hmm. is, is there my little trick I try to do. And, uh, you know, is, um, uh, one day I was, getting ready to pull into a parking spot uh, downtown Indianapolis. So, you know, I pull up and I put on my turn signal and this woman in a small car zips in and just grubs into the spot. Now, of course, I and when I lived in Chicago when I was younger, I, that would have been like, you know, it would have been like an incident. But I, what I said to myself is, and maybe this is a bad attitude, I'm like, you know what? People who do that live the sort of life that people who do that get. <laughs> you know, it doesn't lead you to a good place to be someone who's like out there trying to steal people's no. parking spots. And so it's like, you know, it, it's like some of these actions have their own, they come with their own consequences and there's no reason for me to get too, too crazy about it. Cause I can just circle the block and find another parking spot and not allow that to, to get to me, you know, one little technique that I do uh, that gives, brings me great joy and like events, events in a healthy way, I think is I, I, um, I imagine what would Larry David do in this situation? <laughs> 
And I get this like little voyeuristic pleasure as I imagine, you know, you're sitting in the car and Aaron cursing this person who just like, you know, took your spot and then just take a minute and be like, what would Larry David do? He'd, he'd get out and be like, excuse me, sir, this is society. I was clearly her first. You came in like you, <laughs> you are rupturing this very fragile and precarious <laughs> project. Like go back and find your own spot. <laughs> like, I just kind of like roll out this. Yeah. And of course, how I just described it is much more decent and less colorful than how Larry right. probably would have approached this. But Larry David, for anyone listening that doesn't know, is the founder, creator of Seinfeld and has his own fabulous spinoff show, yeah. Comedy Manners, called Curb Your Enthusiasm, that I'm a huge enthusiast for. I, I argue in my book that Larry David is the foremost defender of civilization, that, you know, this peer-to-peer -peer accountability of him calling calling people out for for double parking, for, for stealing parking spots, for not returning their shopping carts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Civilization is held together by the small things, by people's willingness to make small sacrifices for the sake of living with others. And to the extent that we don't do that, like society unravels and we don't appreciate that. <laughs> so Larry Davis, the world uh, underappreciated today and also a great kind of like psychological technique to uh, get, get, get satisfaction like that. That person will, will, will get his comeuppance, uh, you know, we're Larry David ever king of the universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, again, my guest today, Alexandra Hudson. She's the author of the book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles for Healing Society and Ourselves. Again, the link to buy it will be in the show notes. And Lexi, thank you so much and good luck with the book. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here.